in America, one of the growing uh, one of the growing items in America, one of the most popular things for many to do, is uh, to have takeout. Today, as you know, is the Super Bowl, and you can um, imagine that many people today will be eating maybe perhaps pizza or ordering pizza and getting takeout or some order of food like that. Uh, maybe you're like me. I enjoy takeout, though we know what happens when we have that, right? When we eat fast food, it never seems to be. We're not sure what it is, um, and we, we love it, though, and we eat it, and then we feel miserable afterwards. When the Bible, uh, believe it or not, uh, one of the major themes in the Bible uh, is fast food, uh, takeout food, in fact. Uh, in fact, uh, the nation of Israel was instructed by God uh, to make takeout food or fast food. Uh, food that they could carry with them and take with them on their journey. What I'm referring to is the Passover, where we learn in Exodus 12, uh, the Israelites were in captivity there in Egypt. They were had been enslaved for over 400 years. And during their enslavement, they began to cry out to God for freedom. And God heard their cries. And God delivered them. Uh, through miraculous means, uh, through their leader Moses, they were delivered from their captivity and were set free. And we know the Bible teaches us there in Exodus 12 that upon their leaving, they were to have a, a last meal, if you will, together. Uh, all the families were to uh, go and sacrifice a lamb and take its blood and paint it on the doorpost. And, and if that family had trusted in God's mean of salvation, which was that lamb, if they had done what God had instructed, then the, the death angel would pass over, literally pass over their home, and their firstborn child wouldn't die. Now, many Israelites didn't do that, and they lost their firstborn. But this takeout, as they were to prepare the meal, it was to be uh, cooked in a certain way with certain ingredients missing, one being yeast. If you've ever made bread before, it's it's a quite uh, it's not for one who is impatient. Uh, bread bread making is a patient job, right? Why? Because you have to add the yeast and then let the let the bread rise, and that takes time. And then you have to like knock it back down again, and then let it rot, proof some more, right? But we know it takes time. Uh, yesterday, my wife and I were, were, were we had a turkey uh, and we were cooking, we were uh, boiling it, making a stew. And, and one of the things that hit my mind is is the fact that God instructed them to roast the meat, not boil the meat. Why? Well, that that pot was on the stove all day long yesterday for some eight hours as it cooked away and all the meat began to fall off the bones. They didn't have time for that. They needed to prepare a meal that, and they needed to get out of time out of town quickly. And so God instructed them to prepare the Passover meal. And it would be the Passover lamb that would be the tapestry on which God would paint the picture of redemption. It would be the story that was told over and over and over again. In fact, in Exodus 12, when Moses is given the instructions by God, God tells them that you will do this annually and do this regularly. And when you do this, your children are going to ask you questions. They're going to ask you, why are we doing this? Why are we roasting this meat? And, and why are we not having uh, leaven? In, why, why, why is all the yeast gone? Why, why are we making these cakes? And it was upon those moments that they were to instruct their children about God's salvation from slavery. How God had delivered them from bondage. How God had opened a new way and created a new people, a nation, uh, out of that event. 
Israel was to celebrate this event as a continual reminder that God alone would provide the salvation through the death of another. You see, the the Passover lamb is that pinnacle sacrifice where the lamb died in place of the firstborn. That theme of substitutionary atonement, something died in the place, is a thread that runs throughout all of the Bible. As God would tell the story, as we understand it, that one day there would come a man who would die in the place of all men, who would ever turn and trust in him. This man, Jesus Christ. And it was upon the Passover meal that Jesus would institute the Lord's Supper. Because there's a great connection and a great significance between the Passover lamb and the Lord's Supper. As a remembrance that that sacrifice, atoning sacrifice, would be the means in which God would once again deliver His people from slavery. Not from slavery to a particular nation, but their slavery to sin. And so with that in our minds, let's go now to 1 Corinthians and read there 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Now as we begin to read, we're kind of parachuting into this, uh, so let me set the stage, if you will, the context. This church is a mess. The church in Corinth was a was a mess. It was a mess because there was division among it. In the beginning of the letter, Paul writes in chapter 1 and verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. There was a division among a disunity among them. They were not of the same mind. It was the same church, though, that he'll praise later in the letter. A church that was confused. And and so Paul is writing in response to what he has heard about this congregation. Uh, Some of the mispractices and wrong teachings that were going on there and divisions. And so throughout the heart of the letter, right here where we're at in chapter 11, and really begins back in chapter uh, 6, Paul begins to address issues that have been reported to him. So for example, if you have your Bibles open, look at chapter 11 and verse 2. Now I commend you because... You remember me in everything and maintain the tradition even as I delivered them to you. And so in some things they were being commended for their obedience. But as you'll see in the Lord's Supper, uh, he does not commend them. And so Paul writes to clarify uh, what really um, some of these issues and, and particularly the damaging effect they were having, this disunity was having on the Lord's Supper. It was damaging the gospel, and it was confusing people. And so Paul writes to clarify for us. And so this is a helpful passage for us in our, in our endeavors to understand what is the Lord's Supper. Beginning in verse 17 of chapter 11. Verse 17 of chapter 11, Paul writes, But in the following instructions I do not commend you, because when you come together it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? 
What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it is not for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. And so Paul here outlines for us very clearly uh, instructions on the Lord's Supper. So we're going to think particularly this morning from this passage um, what the Lord's Supper is, how we should practice the Lord's Supper, and uh, and. Uh, hopefully grow through that. The Lord's Supper, I think Paul is saying here, and, and hopefully this is kind of the argument that I hope to present, is that the Lord's Supper is an identity-shaping remembrance and proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Lord's Supper shapes the identity of God's people. The way the Passover shaped the identity of the nation of Israel. Only Israelites were to eat. Only those whom had been circumcised could eat of the Passover lamb. And so the Lord's Supper shapes our identity as God's people and in a way that causes us to remind, remember and proclaim the gospel. And so this morning I hope to, to illustrate from the text what this means. And so Paul outlines for us uh, three ways the Lord's Supper should shape our lives together as a congregation. Three ways that the Lord's Supper should shape our lives together as a congregation, ways that our lives is defined. First, the Lord's Supper should, should shape our lives together by, making, by marking us off as a community. By marking us off as a community. In verses 17 through 22, Paul identifies the problem, but in it he gives positive instruction. We understand here from this passage that the Lord's Supper is a church activity, not a private one. It's a church activity, not a private one. The Lord's Supper is not to be taken in the privacy of your own home. It is an ordinance of the church. It is not an ordinance of the individual Christian. Like disciple-making is a, is a command given in Scripture that we are to do individually, the Lord's Supper is a practice that is done as a church. Let me show you what I mean here. Look at how many times he says in just a few verses, when you come together. Verse 17, because when you come together, it is not for the better or for the worse. Verse 18, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, uh, it goes on to write, verse 20, when you come together. And then again, at the end of the passage in verse 34, if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it is not for judgment. I think Paul is, is stressing here that the ordinance of the Lord's Supper is a community-building activity. It is to be done as a church. 
as we see, he identifies the word ecclesia or church, assembly. When you assemble together. And so the question is, when does this congregation assemble together? Well, we really only assemble together at 1030 on the Lord's Day every week. And so for us, the the really only context where we should partake of the Lord's Supper is when we gather together, when the members are gathered uh, together at a particular time where we would say this is the church, where the members are represented in the church. And so the Lord's Supper is not to be taken in the privacy of our own homes or in the privacy of some back hallway in the church. The, The Lord's Supper is an activity that the whole body does together. When we are assembled and one. This is perhaps an argument against multi-services as well. In that the church is only gathered together at one service. And why I firmly believe the Bible teaches that when the church gathers, there the Lord's Supper. But we also see that the Lord's Supper makes visible those who belong to Christ. The Lord's Supper shapes us as a community by marking us up. It's like a flashlight shining on us. This is us. And so when we partake of the Lord's Supper, we are saying this is who the church is. Those who eat are those who are in the church. Look with me at verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. You see, Paul is frustrated with this congregation because when they got together, it was terrible. Because it seems that the rich people were pushing the poor people aside. All the rich people said, hey, you know, we're supposed to meet at 1030, but let's get there at 1015. We'll eat all the food. uh, We'll we'll get drunk. And then, you know, there won't be anything left over for anybody else. And so that's what they were doing. Uh, When they would gather together, uh, they had a meal together, and then they partook of the Lord's Supper. And so it was just this terrible undermining of the gospel. Disunity was on display, and Paul is frustrated. But notice what he says. Verse 18, from the first place, when you come together, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be divisions among you. See, Paul is not saying that all division is bad. If you, don't, if you read that slowly, you understand that some division is good. Paul sees a division that is good. And what does he mean? Well, I believe what he's teaching here and what he is going to teach later in chapters 12 and on is about church membership. That there are members of the church who are marked off by the congregation saying these are the members. These are the people that make up this congregation, this community. And so Paul says, look, there should be demarcation. There should be some division among you in the sense that those who are not following Christ and those who are following Christ. And so I don't believe Paul means that, you know, if you're visiting with us today and you're not a member of the church, you're like, man, I'm just not welcome here, I guess. He's only for members. No, no, that's not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying the division is those who are following Christ and those who are not following Christ. The division among them is going to be marked off when they partake of the Lord's Supper because the ordinance of the Lord's Supper makes visible those who belong to Christ. Not only that, we see that the Lord's Supper is communing with Christ and with others. Uh, Throughout this passage, Paul is focused on the community of believers. He's focused not on individuals, but on the whole corporate body. Now, he has said something that we didn't read, and he he said it just a a page earlier. So if you turn over to chapter 10 and verse 14. 
So in your Bibles, you might have to turn a page. Chapter 10 and verse 14. Listen to what Paul, here Paul is arguing against uh, idolatry and particularly eating meat sacrificed to idols. And, um, and so he, he's teaching them about this. But notice what he uses. He uses the Lord's Supper to help argue against idolatry. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as the sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? Why do I imply then that food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and the table of demons. And and so what Paul is arguing is that when we partake of the Lord's Supper, we are communing with Christ and with one another. And the the point I want to press here is this communion with one another. That what we're doing in the Lord's Supper is not an individual activity uh, where we're just sort of you and Jesus having having your little uh, moment together. But rather, what we see happening is a community is being created. Those who eat the bread and drink the cup are demonstrating that they are following Christ. It, it lets us all know who, who's in and who's out. It reminds us, hey, she's following Christ. Hey, he's following Christ. Oh, he's not following Christ. Oh, she's not following Christ. It reminds us that those who are repentant sinners and those who are not. And so to partake is to say that I'm receiving the benefits that Christ's death and resurrection afford me. Furthermore, that we are a community together. That we're a family. In the early church, and particularly as we see in the example here, in chapter 11 and and the Lord's instruction, there was a common loaf and a common cup. Now, in our day and age, uh, with germophobia and all those kind of things, that just wouldn't work, would it? Uh, right? Um, uh, you know, drinking after people, that's just weird, right? We, we generally only do that with family folks, right? Where we're comfortable drinking after family members, aren't we? We don't really think much of it, but, you know, we don't sit at a, at a, at a table and, and take uh, a friend or a neighbor or a stranger's drink and drink after them, right? Uh, we just don't do that. It's not socially acceptable. It's weird. But friends, in, in, in the church... If you would symbolize for a moment what we're doing is eating from a common loaf and a common cup. That eating from a common loaf and a common cup symbolizes the kind of unity that the gospel creates. And so as the cup is being passed around and, and members were drinking of that, you know, they weren't afraid. They weren't afraid like, oh, that's weird. Why? Because the person sitting next to me isn't a stranger, but a brother and a sister in Christ. We're, we're, we're in a family together. We're, we, we have the same blood in our veins, the blood of Christ Jesus. Now, now I'm not advocating that we're going to start drinking from a common cup, so don't email me with your complaints about germs uh, and so on and so forth. But I want you to see that when we eat the Lord's Supper, it is symbolizing unity. It is marking us off as a people. 
Because of the nature of the Lord's Supper is communal. It pushes against our own evil desires for self-gratification. It pushes against uh, our own desires for individualism and disunity. And so every time we celebrate, it is a reminder that we are a family, that we are brothers and sisters. It reminds us that we're not alone, that we have people all around us who are persevering and praying for us that we would endure to the end. And so the, today, when we eat the Lord's Supper, look at the community that is carved out as we partake. Not only that, we see, secondly, the Lord's Supper shapes our lives together by reminding us of the need of the gospel. One of the, we see the very nature of the Lord's Supper is one of remembrance. Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. Do this as a memorial to me, as a constant reminder of the gospel, of a constant reminder of what I've done for you. Look what, the, what he writes in verse 22. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. In other words, Jesus says, this is my body and it is now yours. What I am doing is in your place. Jesus, in highly uh, symbolic language, says, I am going to be broken for you. Not because I have done anything wrong. Not because I am sinful. Jesus does not die because he deserved God's judgment. Jesus was innocent. He lived a perfect, righteous life before His Heavenly Father. Never sinning. Never rebelling against. And so what we see here is that Christ's body was a substitutionary atonement. He took our place. He bore and appeased the wrath of God for us. In other words, on the cross, Jesus bore in His body the wrath that our sins rightly deserved. And by doing so, fulfilled the punishment that was due our sins. And so when we consider the body, we're considering the perfect righteousness of Christ, that perfect life, a perfect sacrifice, just like in the Passover lamb. They were to go and find a spotless lamb. Not that had one that had blemish. Not, you know, they weren't to sacrifice the one that was, was junk and trash, that was valueless. No, they were to take the most valuable piece of property that they owned and destroy it. And so God takes the most valuable piece, His own Son, and He sacrifices it for our sin and for our iniquity. This is what the Gospel is all about. You see, the Bible tells us that we are sinners, that God is holy, and that He has created us uh, to follow Him, to obey Him, to do what He says. But men rebel against God. Adam and Eve rebelled against God by choosing to live life their own way, by saying, no, I'm not going to do this. God, we think we can do life better without you. And that's what all men do. All men, all women say that it's better to follow my own way, my own heart, rather than following God. The Bible tells us that God is righteous, that He can't have sinners running around rebelling against Him. And so He's condemned every sinner, every one of us, eternally to hell. But God sent His only Son to die as a sacrifice that we just talked about. Died for our behalf so that we might have life with Him. 
And all those who turn from their life of sin, all those who repent of their sins and trust in Christ and in the finished work of Christ are saved and have new life. This is what Paul writes in Colossians 2. And you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Friend, will you trust Christ today? Will you see that the body of Christ was broken for you? More than that, we see that the Lord's Supper reminds us of our need for a new heart. The Bible is very clear that our heart is broken. That's why we shouldn't be following it. That's why we shouldn't be doing what it says. Our hearts are broken. Our souls are tainted with sin. We are desperately wicked. That is to say that if we had a choice between God and sin every day of the week, we would choose sin over God. Our hearts are broken. And therefore, the Bible says we need a new heart. Jesus says here in verse 24, excuse me, in verse 25, in the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Not only is it a remembrance of the gospel in the salvific way, but it's a reminder of our need for a new heart. God had promised through Jeremiah that there would come a day when God's people would be given a new heart and a new mind. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Jacob. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when they took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was a husband, declares the Lord. We can see the Lord here laying aside, laying aside the Passover. And picking up a new covenant, that covenant that was made, that covenant that's displayed through the Passover celebration is being set aside and a new covenant is being being put in place. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. What we celebrate in the Lord's Supper is that covenant. Covenants were sealed by blood. Covenants were sealed by the shedding of blood. And the blood of Christ seals the new covenant. It guarantees the covenant is ratified. And so when we celebrate, we are celebrating the new life that Christ has given us through his own blood. We are celebrating that we have a new heart, new desires, new wants in our lives. And finally, we see the Lord's Supper reminds us that we must do this regularly. He says, do this as often as you eat and drink. There's a reason why the church does this every month. Every month we gather together because we need the reminder monthly. Some churches perhaps even practice weekly. Um, That's fine. It doesn't matter how often. The Bible doesn't say how often. As often as you can, I think, is good practice. But we see here our need for a regular reminder of the gospel. We need a spiritual checkup. 
And so we see that when we do this, not only are we reminding ourselves of the gospel, but we are proclaiming a message to the world around us. So he writes, for as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now you didn't think you were a preacher, but every time you eat and drink of the cup in a way that's worthy, You are declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ. You are putting on display the broken body and blood of Christ that died for you. The Lord's Supper is so vital for us together as God's people to be practiced rightly, for it marks us off and reminds us of the need for the gospel. Like a visit to the doctors, we need to be checked up. We might, for example, you might go to the doctor regularly to have a physical done or just to make sure everything's going well for you. Brothers and sisters, the Lord's Supper is like going to the doctor to get a checkup. Every time you gather, you are doing a monthly spiritual checkup that reminds you of the need for the gospel, that reminds you that I need Christ in my life and I need to be faithful in following him. And so that's our third and final point. The Lord's Supper shapes our lives together by exposing our need for self-examination. Exposes our need for self-examination, if you will, to make sure and to ask ourselves, am I following Jesus? In my life, have I been following Christ? Now, in the church in Corinth, they were not following Christ, but their own bellies. They were seeking to satisfy their own selfish desires rather than serving the the body of Christ. They they were there for themselves, not for others. And so that was the apparent sin in their own hearts. But, But for this, the principle remains the same. We also must examine ourselves, lest we face some of the similar judgments that they faced. We are told that that some of them were were getting sick and dying. God was judging them in the physical world for their spiritual sin. Your sin has consequences. Now, you might think, oh, you know, I'll deal with it one day. Uh, It's kind of like debt. You know, one day it'll be paid off. Uh, You know, you think about it that way. You you think about your sin like, yeah, I'll deal with it one day. No, God dealt with them that day. He dealt with them clearly by killing them. This is how serious this matter is and and why we should not approach the Lord's Supper as some casual event that we're just kind of cobbling together. But rather we see the need here for self-examination. And this self-examination shows us our total disregard for the gospel. Our total disregard for the gospel. We often in our own souls need to be reminded that we need a Savior. See, one of the worst things that happens to Christians is they begin to progress. They begin to grow in their holiness, grow in godliness. And they begin to think that they are the ones generating godliness and holiness in their life. They become prideful. Wow, look at me. Look how awesome I am. Look how, look how spiritual I am. Look how good I am. And they forget all of that was brought to them by the work of Christ, not their own effort. We need to be reminded of this truth, reminded that that our salvation is by faith alone and not by works. And so we need to be reminded that we often, so often, are selfish in nature, prideful, covetous. And we need to see that, that we need to work. And so we're reminded of our need to progress by exposing our own sinfulness. 
Not only that, we see that self-examination helps us follow Christ's example. Look what he writes here in verse 28. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now that body there that, that he's referring to could refer to the church, or to Christ, or to both. And I take the latter being both. That is discerning the body of Christ, the life of Christ, that one willing sacrifice. Examine, are you obeying Christ's commands? In the self-examination, what we're asking ourselves is, am I following Christ's commands or am I following my own? That is, am I living in the kingdom of self or the kingdom of God? Which am I following? Am I serving myself or am I serving others? And friends, this is why, as Baptists, we believe that only baptized believers uh, should participate in the Lord's Supper. And here's why. It's not because we're mean and we don't love people uh, of other denominations like Presbyterians and, and so forth. But it's because we believe that baptism is the most basic form of following Christ. Uh, it is the, it's kind of the first step of following Jesus. And if you just can't get your first step right, we just, we're not sure how you're doing in other areas of your life. And that's why Baptists historically have practiced this. This understanding that only believers who are baptized, you heard it, and I'll read it in a moment again, is supported by the practice of Scripture. Uh, throughout the Bible, and particularly in Matthew 28, we are commanded by Jesus, go therefore and make disciples, baptizing them. That is, there is this disciple-making process and baptism that seems to go together. When one comes to faith in Christ, then they're baptized. Now, we're not going to speak about baptism today, but if we were to turn to Acts, for example, you would see passage after passage where the gospel was preached, lives were transformed, and then folks were baptized. That is, believers were baptized upon profession of faith. Now, we could have a discussion about mode, that is, sprinkling versus you know, immersion, all those kind of things. But the point that I'm making here is that a believer who has been baptized after conversion is what we believe the Bible to teach as a regular practice. And therefore, we believe that those who do not, uh, are, excuse me, those who are not baptized are not faithful in their following of Christ. And so today, if you, believe, if you understand yourself to be a Christian and you've not been baptized post-conversion, well then, friend, just talk to me after the service. We can, we can think about that. Uh, be happy uh, to baptize you. And so historically, Christians, uh, excuse me, historically Baptists, particularly uh, through the London Baptist Confession, the New Hampshire Confession, and in our own statement of faith, the Baptist faith and message, has sought to make clear that the Lord's Supper is an ordinance of the church, and therefore it is a privilege of church, baptism is a privilege of church membership and to the Lord's Supper. I'll say that again. Uh, I'll read it again. Being a church ordinance, that is, baptism, it is a prerequisite to the privileges of church membership and to the Lord's Supper. I don't know if you've ever noticed that before, but it says that. Friends, I don't say that to belittle your faith. So this morning, if you're gathering and you've not been baptized, friends, you're welcome here. Uh, so I don't in any way mean to communicate that you're not a Christian. Uh, so that's not what I'm communicating to you this morning. 
But what I am seeking to communicate is that as a congregation, uh, we hope to follow the scriptures and we see the normal practice of baptizing believers and therefore we think that is a wise way to ensure that, that you are following Christ. Not only that, we see that self-examination here leads us to receiving God's grace through faith and repentance. When we examine our hearts before the Lord's Supper, we are not fearful and afraid. We're not like, oh, I'm a sinner and God hates me and I, I, I'm undone. But rather, we recognize before our eyes the grace of God. We're reminded that God is a, is a graceful and merciful God. That He will forgive sinners. And so we freely confess our sin before God. We're not afraid of it, but we want to bring it into the light. We want the light of the gospel to shine on it. And so we are in the Lord's Supper just using it as a time to bring our sin out, bring it into life, and to ask myself, am I following Christ? Am I obeying Christ? Brothers and sisters, as we approach the Lord's Supper, let us have this self-examination upon our minds. Let us regularly be thinking about our need for self-examination and confession. I urge you today, don't, don't wait till the next time. Start today. Reflect in your own heart. Where is there sin? Where am I following self rather than God? Where am I serving self rather than others? Let it be a regular part of your preparation on the Lord's Day. This is why we let you know a week in advance that we're going to celebrate communion so that you can prepare your heart, so you can prepare yourself as you come this morning. So as we draw near to the table, we are exposing, or exposed to, excuse me, the majesty and glory of God the grace and mercy that God affords us in the gospel. And we are reminded of our need of repentance. A gift, if you will, given to the church is to regularly allow ourselves to be exposed to the glory of God in the Lord's Supper. It's more than a piece of bread and a, and a, and a little grape juice. It symbolizes the majestic life of Christ, His holiness and perfect life. Brothers, the gospel reminds us of our need for Christ and the Lord's Supper displays that need. It turns our attention off of us and towards Him. It serves as a constant reminder of our eternal need for Christ. It provides the continual perspective we need to ensure that we're focused on the right things and following Christ in the right ways. As we continue to serve Christ through our worship of Him and service to those in need, we continue to proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Many of you today, if you've been married, or are married, or plan to be married, or have gone to a wedding, or participated in a wedding before, or know anything about weddings, knows that traditionally, well, at least in our culture here in America, um, on the night before the wedding day, so if the wedding's on Saturday, Friday night, or if the wedding's on Sunday, then sun Saturday night, Often, in, in most practice, is that wedding couples go through a dress rehearsal, right? They, they, everybody gets together, all the groomsmen, all the bridesmaids, the, the groom and the bride get together, and they go through a, a dress rehearsal. They, they run through everything, right? They make sure everybody's coming in at the right way. It's kind of a, a choreography event, um, and uh, the pastor doesn't really go through the whole service, but he, but he does work through, you know, we're going to do this here, that there, and this person's going to do this, and, and this individual's going to do that. And they kind of go through this dry run dress rehearsal of what? The, the wedding, right? They're not 
you know, dress rehearsing for a football game. They're there to dress rehearse the, the, uh, the wedding that's going to be the next day. And so what happens there, right, should be a mimic of what's going to happen the next day. It should be exactly what's going to happen. Maybe not all the specific details, uh, but it foreshadows what's going to come the next day. As the bride and groom go through this, it's a time of, of great anticipation, I would imagine. As I recall in my own, you know, it's anticipation. Tomorrow I'm going to be married. And this, in this anticipation of the next day through this dress rehearsal, uh, the feelings, the butterflies are there, and there's a sense of palpable excitement. Friends, the Bible teaches us that the Lord's Supper is also a dress rehearsal. It's a dry run, if you will, an anticipation of a future supper. A supper called the marriage supper of the Lamb, when the bride of Christ will be united to its Savior. The day when Christ comes. One day, very soon, we will gather around the table with all the saints who have ever professed faith in Christ, past, present, and future. We will gather around and feast at the marriage supper of the Lamb. John saw a picture of that. He saw a vision of that great day. And you were there. If you are today in Christ, He saw you there. Gathered around the table. And He heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters. And like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out. There were so many people there. He said it sounded like thunder and lightning. Like, like Niagara Falls times a million. That's how many people were, were crying out, Hallelujah for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come. And His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Let's pray. Eternal Father in heaven, we stand in awe of your glory. We stand in all the grace of Christ that you would invite sinners like us into your home. Father, we pray today that we would have a renewed sense of urgency about these matters. Lord, we would trust again in Christ and there find a willing sacrifice. We pray that we would do all the honor and glory that this supper is due as we anticipate gathering together and eating this with you. Oh, Lord Jesus, we long for you. We long to be at your table. And Father, my prayer today is that more would be invited to that table today, that sinners would turn and trust in Christ. These are our prayers, and we pray it for your glory and our eternal good. Amen.